three verses, verses five through seven. Beginning at verse 5, Jude says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Father, this morning, as always, I want to pray that we are focused on Your Word. That, Father, at this uh, time, nothing else matters but what it is You want to say to us. I pray that each present here this morning will hear not just with their ears, but with their heart. And, Father, You would be glorified. In Christ's name, Amen. I want to ask you a question before I start this morning. By way of introduction, has anyone here ever uh, forgot to remember an important appointment? Or an important date, like maybe a birthday or anniversary? Some of you guys are like, "Uh." there you go. Thank you, brother. I had one man raise his hand. I know all of us have forgotten certain things. We forget to remember things. And you know what? You can get into a world of hurt when you forget to remember things. Certain things especially. Uh, I I know many of you probably heard this story. I think I've shared it before about a young preacher. He was going to preach his first sermon. And he was nervous. And he went to an old mentor, an older pastor. And he said, "Uh, do you have an introduction, something I can use that would really grab folks' attention? Kind of an icebreaker. The old preacher said, yeah, I got something that works every time. He said, this is what you do. He said, son, when you get the pulpit, he said, just tell the people, say, I want you to know that some of the best years of my life were spent in the arms of another man's wife. He said, then pause for dramatic effect. He said, then say, my mother. He said, you got that? Young man said, I got it. I can do that. He said, now, don't forget to pause before you say, my mother, and don't forget to tell your wife what you're doing. Well, the day arrived, his first sermon He was uh, excited about it, of course, but he had butterflies the size of bats. I mean, he was nervous. He got up in the pulpit. He cleared his throat. He remembered the words of his mentor. He said, folks, I want to tell you, some of the best days, years of my life, I spent in the arms of another man's wife. Now, this young preacher had two problems at this point. Number one, he was real nervous. Number two, he forgot to tell his wife what he was doing. And after he said that, you know, the best days and years of my life I've spent in the arms of another man's wife, he paused for dramatic effect. When he paused, his wife, being the hot-tempered lady that she was, got up from the back of the church and started down the aisle. Well, this unnerved and shook the young preacher. So he stuttered, he stammered, and he said again, the best years of my life I've spent in the arms of another man's wife. And then he said, and to save my life, I don't remember who she was. Now, folks, it, uh, it pays to remember, amen? It can cost you not to remember. It be very costly. It's been wisely said that those who don't remember from the past, they're destined or they're condemned to repeat it. 
And we're not to live in the past, of course, but we are to look to the past, learn from the past so that we don't lose the present and so we don't lack for the future. Now Jude is encouraging his readers. Notice what he says in verse 5 again. He says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this. So what Jude is doing, he is encouraging his readers, don't forget to remember. Folks, again, there are some lessons we can learn from what happened yesterday that will help us enjoy today and also help us secure the future. Now, I want to recap a minute. Remember, Jude is talking about apostasy. He's speaking about apostates, about pretend Christians, about those who profess salvation but don't possess salvation. And what Jude does, he uses three examples uh, that we just read a few moments ago as reminders. He uses these examples because, folks, each one deals with how apostates turn from God and how God judges them when they do. He uses a national example, he uses a celestial example, and he also uses a social example. So notice with him in verse 5, first he talks about the disbelieving who rebel against the Word of God. And the first example Jude uses is the nation of Israel. Once again, verse 5. He said, I'll therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Now, this example, folks, takes us all the way back to Egypt, to Moses, and to Pharaoh. Now, you remember for many, many years, hundreds of years, God's people were in bondage in Egypt. And for years and years and years, they sent missiles of prayer to heaven, crying out, for God's deliverance. Well, God heard their prayer and He did deliver them. And in doing so, He proved that He could be trusted completely. I mean, God proved He could be trusted completely to battle against their enemies, against their foes. There was no more powerful army in the world at this time than the Egyptian army. Pharaoh was the ultimate commander. He had an army that that he ruled and a nation that he ruled with an iron fist. No one ever dreamed that Pharaoh would let these poor ragtag Hebrew slaves go. But he did. And you remember why he did. God took a hand in it. God sent disasters in the form of lice and, and hail and locusts and frogs. He sent disease in the form of boils and pestilence. He sent darkness that covered the land of Egypt. And then finally He sent the death angel taking the life of every firstborn child in Egypt. The result was Israel was allowed to leave. And you read the story, they were, they were sent off with a good riddance. And their bondage was ended. So God proved He could be trusted to face their foes. But God also proved He could be trusted with their freedom. They were free because God declared that they were free. But after they left Egypt, Pharaoh got to reconsidering and the Egyptian people, they couldn't believe it. They didn't want to believe it. And you remember the story. Pharaoh sent his army in hot pursuit after God's people. And now the nation of Israel, or the Israelites at that time, they found themselves in a situation. They're facing the Red Sea in the front and Pharaoh's army behind them. Well, what did God do? He divided the sea. He drowned the Egyptian army and He delivered His people. And what He did was prove that the God who set you free, friend, is the God who can keep you free. Then God proved He'd be trusted with their provisions, with their daily necessities. Uh, out in the wilderness, when they got hungry, what did God do for them? Give them manna from heaven. Probably fried chicken. I don't know what manna is, but, 
manna from heaven. And then they got thirsty. What did God do? He provided water from a rock. He met all of their needs. Now God did this because He wanted to prove to the nation of Israel, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that they could believe His Word completely. What He says, He will do. Now remember, God had brought the people out of Egypt. Not just so they could be free, but why? So they could go into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. God told them, in effect, He said, I have given you all this land. Your job is to claim what I've given you. Take me at my word. And if you'll do that, you'll conquer all this land. But, folks, in spite of all that God had done, they didn't believe what God said. Because in Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 22, it tells us the result of not believing God, not taking God at His word. God says, Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and they have put me to the test now these ten times, and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. Now I want you to think about this. Even though God proved He could be trusted with their foes, He could be trusted with their freedom, He could be trusted with their provision, with their food, they didn't believe that God could be trusted with their future and with their faith. So what happened? Well, you know what happened? The whole nation of Israel, everyone from 20 years and older, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, they died in the wilderness. They never saw the promised land. Now why does disbelief bring death? Well folks, think about it. Disbelief questions the ability of God. It says, can He do what He says He can do? Disbelief also questions the integrity of God. It says, does God do what He says He's going to do? And then finally, disbelief, it questions the veracity of God. It says, will God do what He says He will do? Now, I want you to truly listen to me for just a moment. Listen to what I'm about to say to you and get this in your head and down into your heart. All of the nations of Israel, the whole nation, they had a similar experience. Alright, they all experienced the parting of the Red Sea. They all experienced uh, the manna from heaven. They all drank from the water that came from the rock. They all witnessed the miracles in Egypt. They all witnessed the, the pillar of clouds and the pillar of fire. They all seen the same miracles, but listen to what I want you to grasp. Not all of them were truly saved. They had the same experience, but they didn't have the same faith. Therefore, they did not have the same God. You know, the Bible never ever tells us to look to an experience for assurance of salvation. The Bible tells us to look to the present and the Word of God. And may I tell you right now, friend, listen to me, the most important question you need to ask yourself today is not, was I saved, but am I saved? You see, an apostate is not someone who had salvation and then lost it because of disbelief. An apostate is someone who has never had salvation and they prove they've never had it through disbelief. The real test, the true test of faith and trust, it's not talk, friend. It's obedience. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Listen to me, friend. 
what a man or a woman really believes, they're going to live. The rest of it is just simple trash talk. If you believe it, you're going to live it. If you don't believe it, you're not going to live it. Now these apostates, these people proven to be apostates that Jude is talking about, they turned away from the God they claim to know. They are the disbelieving folks who rebel against the Word of God. Now I want you to see the second example that Jude gives. And it's the disobedient who rebel against the will of God. Look at verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. Now, most Bible scholars believe that this verse refers to an incident that took place all the way back in the book of Genesis. Chapter 6 starts in verse 1. I want you to listen. Now, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, and the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with a man, Forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now this is before the flood, okay? And it goes on and says, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now I'm going to try to explain this best I can to you. Evidently what happened was there were some angels who rebelled against God's authority. Now we know there were angels that rebelled against God's authority. But there were certain angels that rebelled. They fell from heaven. They inhabited the bodies of certain men who were already susceptible to evil influence and they procreated a race of giants with women. Now I know people say, oh, that's just hard to believe. Preacher, I can't. Really believe that. That sounds incredible. There are three ways you can interpret that passage. The one I guess just give you, that is the biblical way to interpret that passage. See, we, we want to try to turn things to make it more uh, palatable and more acceptable to us. We don't have the right to turn and twist God's Word. But what I've just told you is, is the closest interpretation to come to on what that verse is talking about, what this story is talking about. So, you say it's incredible? Well, I remind you, friend, it's taught very plainly in the Old Testament that angels take on the form of human body. And any time an angel takes on human form, it's always male. Now, these fallen angels, and you call them demons because that's what they were, they possessed the bodies of evil men, and they engaged in sexual relations with women, procreating a race of giants that filled the earth with wickedness and evilness, and God said, that's enough. I'll give you 120 years. Why? That's how long it took Noah to build the ark. Now, according to Jude, folks, these angels did not keep their first estate. Notice that word estate. I may say domain if using other than the King James. The word literally means rule or area of responsibility. In other words, these angels relinquished their position. They resigned their purpose. Their position was to be ministering angels carrying out the will of God. And their purpose was to serve God and God's people. But friend, they did not keep their divinely appointed position. They rebelled against the will of God and turned their lofty position into a lustful perversion. And these spirits became apostate angels. They turned away from God. They turned away from the will of God to carry out their own selfish desires. So what's all that got to do with us? Well, as I thought about this, studying over this message this week, God hit me with something. You know what, folks? God has given professors to Christian schools. 
and preachers to Christian churches, and he has given to them a high position and a lofty purpose. A professor in a seminary has the position of training students to preach the Bible faithfully. And a pastor has, folks, the purpose of teaching people to believe the Bible fully. But there are apostates behind podiums, behind pulpits today, who have misused their position and abused their purpose, and they have led schools and churches and entire denominations away from the Word of God and therefore away from the power of God. There's a word, and I want to say it for all of us, folks, who have been given the privilege of position of teaching the Word of God. And I want you to listen real careful, because the higher the position, the greater the judgment. James makes it clear. James chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive stricter judgment. I want to tell you, I believe with all my heart, the hottest part of hell is reserved for these apostates, these infidels, these professors and preachers who pervert the truth of God and turn the grace of God into lewdness, and they lead people uh, to deny both God and His Word and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what was the result, folks, of this angel rebellion? Look in verse 6, the last part of verse 6. Says he has reserved, he's placed them in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day. These angels have been put in eternal, solitary confinement, folks, away from life, away from life. The judgment that will take place at the second coming of Jesus Christ is what they're expecting. Now, this is a tragedy. You know why? Because it's multiplied, folks. When you think about this, these angels, they tasted heaven, but they still went to hell. Now, let me say something to you. You know, there are people who come to church on Sundays. They feel the warmth of a place where Jesus is loved. Folks, they, they, they are bathed in the glow of praise where Jesus is exalted. They're exposed to the fire of a pulpit that preaches Jesus Christ. They experience the joy of people who receive Jesus Christ. Then they walk out the doors the same way they walked in, lost, unsaved, rebelling against the will of God, which is for you to be saved and receive Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not trying to say that our church is heaven, but I will tell you this. Any true Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Jesus-loving church, anytime you go there, you're going to get a little taste of heaven. It's a double tragedy for people to taste heaven and then go to hell. Now, what's the point that Jude's raising here? Folks, it's, it's simple, and I hope you grasped it. If angels cannot get away with rebellion and apostasy, neither will we. Now, I want you to see the third thing. He talks about, he's talked about the, the disbelieving who rebel against the Word of God. He talked about the disobedient who rebelled against the will of God. Now he talks about the disgraceful in verse 7 who rebel against the ways of God. Look at verse 7 again. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are set forth, that's an important phrase, are set forth for an example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. You know what, just think of the word Sodom and Gomorrah. What kind of images that conjure up in your mind? Rebellion, wickedness, perversity, God's judgment. You know, the sin of this city, Sodom, was so great, Sodom even gave its own name to its own sin, sodomy. Folks, 23 different times in God's Word, 
23 times references are made about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when you combine those 23 references, you're going to find the people of the city of Sodom, they were ungodly, they were unlawful, they were filthy, they were unjust, they were given over to every type of sexual sin and perversion. Now, interestingly enough, according to historians, Sodom was a beautiful place. And it must have been, because think about when uh, Abraham and Lot, when their herdsmen got into argument and fight with one another, Abraham said, this ain't right. We're family, we shouldn't be fighting. He said, tell you what, Lot, look at the whole world. You take what you want, I'll take what's left over. What did Lot choose? The Bible said he cast his eyes toward the plains of Sodom. He said, I'll take Sodom. And biblical historians tell us again it was a beautiful place. It was a place of, of, of spacious skies, amber waves of grain, purple mountains, majesty above the fruited plain. It was watered by lakes. It was lush with meadows. had a wonderful climate. And I'm sure that Lot, I'm sure he thought, ooh, this is the Club Med of the Middle East. Well, folks, what happened to it? What happened? It's simple. The city gave themselves over to sexual immorality and strange flesh. Now the incident Jude refers to is in Genesis 19, verses 1 through 5. Let me read this to you. Now two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. I always, this always hit me. Lot cast his eyes to Sodom, moved into Sodom. Now he's sitting in the gate of Sodom. You know what that means? He's a councilman. He's an alderman. He's sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. <coughs> and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, uh, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet, then you may rise early and go on your way. He wants to protect them and get them out of Sodom as quick as possible. Lot knows who these guys are. He understands why they're there, okay? He says, Then you can be on your way. They said, No, we'll spend night, the night in the open square in the middle of the city. They were angels. What were they scared of? Lot says, no. Instead, he strongly asked them. He said, you turn in to me. Come into my house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now listen to this. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young. Now listen. All the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. Now, people want to argue this point. Those who have a liberal agenda want to argue this point. You cannot argue with God's Word. God, and I believe, folks, God mercifully, to begin with, sent these two angels into Sodom and Gomorrah to warn them the coming of judgment. They need to repent of their sins. You say, why do you say that? Because Abraham and God had a conversation. God said, Abraham, I'm going to wipe Sodom and Gomorrah off the face of the earth. Abraham said, Lord, if I can find just 50 men in there, 40, 30 men, 20, 10 men, Lord, all I'm looking for, 10 righteous men. What did God tell him? If I can find 10 righteous men, I won't destroy the city. There wasn't 10 righteous men. The men of the city of Sodom, they came to Lot's house where the angels were staying. They, and let me put it in straightforward, frank terms. They demanded that he throw those guys out to them so they could perform homosexual rape on them. That's what it says. People say, oh, you shouldn't say nothing like that from the pulpit. Let me tell you something. Our kids in schools are hearing this garbage every day. And the church back in the 60s buried their head in the sand. That's why we're facing what we're facing today. 
In other words, in Sodom, instead of choosing spiritual prosperity, they chose sexual perversity. They chose adultery, fornication, homosexuality over God's way. Which I know we don't hear about it a whole lot, but God's way is still God's way, and it's still the same, and it's the best way. That is no sex before marriage, and all sex within marriage between a man and a woman, a husband and wife. That's God's plan. Now you say, what does Sodom and Gomorrah have to do with the church and apostasy? Well, folks, I don't think that I have to give you the statistics detailing for you the sexual immorality in America today that America seems to be plunging herself into, bathing herself in. You know, I read something yesterday. I will share a couple of things with you. I read yesterday that in every second in America, $4,000 are spent on pornography. Every second. People say, well, you know, we're... Well, at least the divorce rate is better than it used to be. Let me explain something to you. If you study the statistics, divorce within the church is as high as it's ever been. Now, granted, it's come down as a whole in our nation. You know why? Because people not getting married, they're just shacking up. They're living together. And then, you know, we've got the homosexual agenda, folks. It is a militant movement, a march. And they, they don't fear disfavor from anyone. And if you don't agree with it, they'll do all they can to destroy you. Now you may know all that, but let me share with you something you may not know. And this is a pastor where it hits me in the heart. There was a study done two years ago. Uh, about 3,500 men and women. They provided some insight into how so-called conservative Christians today are thinking about sexual morality. Now, I want to warn you, unless you're one of these people, you're going to be shocked by this. Researchers divided the respondents into three categories of attitudes towards sex. There's the traditional attitude, the relational attitude, and the recreational attitude. The traditional group said religious belief always guides their sexual behavior. And premarital sex, extramarital sex, and homosexuality is wrong because God's Word says so. Then you have the relational group. They believe that sex should be part of a loving relationship. It is not necessary to be restricted to marriage. That is, if you truly love someone, then it really doesn't matter. And then the third group, that's the recreational proponents. The recreational group. They believe sex should be enjoyed for its own sake and has nothing whatsoever to do with love or marriage. Now, are you ready for this? Here's the kicker. Nowadays, folks, less than 50% of so-called conservative Christians fall into the traditional category. Less than 50%. You know what that means? That means half of people who call themselves evangelical Christians, conservative Christians today, believe that sex does not have to be restricted to marriage between a husband and wife. Folks, I, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm going to tell you, we may be the most sexually sinful society in the history of mankind. And I want to tell you right now, and, and I know I've probably stepped on some toes, you ought to wear your steel-toed boots is all I can tell you. I'm going to tell you something, folks. Listen to me. You can use civil rights, human rights, uh, constitutional rights, individual rights to justify sexual sin. But whether it's adultery, fornication, or homosexuality, God says it's wrong. And to say otherwise is apostate teaching. 
To say otherwise ignores Scripture. It ignores history. And it ignores the judgment of a righteous, holy, sovereign God. Jude, he goes on to say about these sodomites. Notice that phrase, set forth. I told you it was important. He said they set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now let me explain to you. The Greek word for set forth literally means to expose openly to public view. And here's what's interesting. The word was used to speak of a corpse lying in state. You know, where somebody's dead and they put the body up for everybody to walk by and see. That's what he's talking about. You know what? <clears throat> the trip that we recently took to Israel, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And there were a lot of things I got to see and, and the places I got to go where God's Word talks about it so many times. And actually, once I got home and got to read about this certain location, I believe it's probably one of the most interesting places you can visit over there. I didn't like it when I visited it. It was a dead sea. I, it's a dead sea. You know, I used to refer when we were fishing, the fish weren't biting. This is a dead sea because there's nothing alive in it. But once I got home and began to study about it, folks, it really became interesting. I read where somebody said it's the only place in the world where you can fly an airplane more than a thousand feet below sea level. Now, the Dead Sea, as you know, doesn't have any outlet. It has an inlet, the Jordan River, but it doesn't have any outlet. But, but I read some statistics on it. The average uh, rate of evaporation is something like 7 million tons per day evaporate out of the Dead Sea. Now, evaporation, the problem is it only takes out fresh water. So the salinity and the mineral content of the water, they're constantly increasing. And at any given time, it'll be between 27 and 34% mineral. And because of that, it's impossible to sink in the waters. They say it's, you can fall and go under the water, because I did. It's, it's not impossible. But you float pretty easy in the Dead Sea, okay? And the salt, uh, it, it's so bitter and so, so gritty, it even burns your skin. Now, it's estimated those waters contain, at any given time, about 45 billion tons of valuable chemicals. Chemicals like sodium and chlorine and potassium, magnesium, bromine. <clears throat> but what's interesting, uh, folks, at the south end of the Dead Sea, the south tip of the Dead Sea, there is a massive processing plant. And our guide told me about it when we was visiting about it that day. And this processing plant, it extracts minerals from the Dead Sea to be used in Israel and is shipped around the world. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because at the south end of the Dead Sea is the very location the original cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were located. Now, I want you to keep this in mind. Think about this. Buried at the bottom of the Dead Sea is a dead city, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what did Jesus have to say? I want you to listen. Luke chapter 17, beginning verse 28. He says, Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Let me tell you what Jesus is saying now. Listen real close. He's saying the more we become like Sodom and Gomorrah, the closer we get to the second coming and the judgment of God. Now, I've said it before, but I truly believe this. Billy Graham's one made this comment. He said, if God does not judge America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Folks, it's sad, but it's true. And I, I had somebody uh, confront me because I made this statement. Well, I'm fixing to make it again. America is an apostate nation. 
we have turned our back on God. Now, there's one other thing to think about here. And I want you to listen real close. All of these things Jude talks about, they happened before Jesus came. You say, so what? Well, listen to me. Nothing that was ever done in the Old Testament can ever compare to rejecting Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. So what's Jude's message? It's easy. Don't forget to remember. God is going to judge those who turn from Him and never turn to Him. You see, Jude's message is real clear. If God did not spare Israel, if He did not spare the angels, and He did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, He will not spare you if you fail to receive Jesus Christ. Amen. Folks, I don't know how to tell you this other than think about the choir of life. It's easy to fake the words. You know, you see people at church all the time. They're not really singing. They're just moving their mouth. They're afraid somebody might hear them if they sing. They're just faking the words. But I want you to understand, one day, every one of us, we're going to sing solo before God. It's all going to be laid bare. So don't forget to remember what I'm telling you. In closing, I'm going to use an illustration I've used before, but drives home the point. I thought about this this morning, actually. It's why I was late coming to church. We had uh, burnt brush yesterday. House, beautiful day, no wind, you know, green pasture. So we had a brush pile set on fire that you could see from the space station. Uh, it burned all day, burnt through the night. Well, sometime during the night, the wind got up. I got up this morning, and it was raging pretty good again. So I had to go out, get the tractor, Pull the hose, you know, spread it out, start soaking it down. You say, well, preacher, it's green where the wind's blowing. You forget, I spent almost 30 years in the fire service. I get nervous when there's a fire and the wind's blowing. I don't care how green it is. It'd be bad enough for me to burn down my house, but I definitely don't want to burn down any of my neighbor's houses. So I went out and, and, and went to spreading the fire out and hitting it with water. And as I, I did, as I pulled some of the, and I had some huge pine trunk logs in there, pine tree to cut down. And as I pulled it back, a phenomenon happened, and, and some of you guys firefighters may have seen that, where the wind is blowing and the fire is so hot, when the wind hits it, it turns into a tornado and begins to spin. Now I've seen that time and time again, especially in western Oklahoma, when it's dry and the wind's blowing. The thing about it is, fire generates its own wind. So if a fire is burning and the wind's pushing it at 20 miles an hour, that fire could be moving to about 35 miles an hour. Now, grass fires and wildfires, some of the most dangerous fires you can fight. And the reason is because the dynamics are ever-changing. you got to keep your head on a swivel. you got to pay attention to the weather, to the temperature, to the wind, to the topography. And so they teach you something when you're a young firefighter about fighting grass fires and wildland fires. They teach you always, always stay on the burnt side. Don't get to the unburnt side. Now the reason that is, is because fire cannot come where fire has already been. Now I told you all that to tell you this, friend. When the judgment of Almighty God falls on this world again, there's only one safe place to stand. That's at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where the judgment, the fire of God's judgment has already fallen. I hope that you'll keep that in mind. And friend, my prayer is 
you won't forget to remember what I've told you today. Would you bow your heads, please?